Section 15 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3 Charles and Clarendon, Part 1. Since the grandfather of Charles received the crown from Elizabeth, a change had come over the meaning of the word monarchy, which was amply illustrated by the declaration from Breda. The old phrases might be used in parliamentary addresses, the absence of all conditions imposed by the houses might be dwelt upon by exulting royalists, but every one knew that there were conditions, and that the phrases merely veiled a profoundly altered set of relations. Nominally the prerogative remained what it was before thirty years of strife had taught their lessons, but nonetheless it was clear that prerogative and parliament executive and legislative, were terms which had received new interpretations in men's minds, and must now undergo in practical application a serious and frank revision, if the English monarchy, the English parliament, and the English people were to live in harmony during the reign which opened in such a delirium of satisfaction. Even more pressing was the question, what was the new church to be? how were the lessons of the last generation to be applied to her? There was no place in England for another Strafford. Was there a place for another Laud? Was the church to return to her old powers, her old possessions? Was she to be the Erastian church of Elizabeth, the Anglican church of Charles I? Was Presbyterianism to be bowed to, or comprehended, or tolerated, or hounded out of her borders? What was to become of tender consciences, of independence, of Anabaptists, of the thousand sects which had sprung up? How were the promises made by Charles to the Catholics to be redeemed when it was remembered that the mere report of his conversion had been enough to imperil his return? What, in fact, was to become of the first part of the great inheritance left by Cromwell, toleration? but it was not these comprehensive issues which for the moment pressed most heavily. The problems which called for solution without a day's unnecessary delay were those of life and property and of freedom from the rule of the sword. That the regicides should suffer was understood by all. But how much farther was vengeance to be carried? It was not disputed that the church and crowned lands which had been confiscated and sold by the commonwealth should revert to the church and crown but were men who had paid hard cash and fair bargain for the lands of necessitous royalists to be robbed because they had been on the wrong side and lastly what was to be done with the army that army which had destroyed in turn the monarchy and the parliament and which even now might in a moment throw all into confusion neither monarchy nor parliament could breathe freely until it was gone and when it was gone who would occupy the vacant field of force who was to enter into the second part of cromwell's legacy the power of the sword such were some of the questions which at this particular phase of the great controversy that had opened out when james i came to the throne and in its essentials closed when James II left it, demanded skilful and in some cases immediate reply. And of what sort was the king upon whom that reply rested? 
the preceding pages will indeed have been written in vain if this is doubtful for they are a record however slight of his life and he was what his life had made him before he was thirteen years old he had learned that there was no divinity that hedged a king and after four years of confusion and defeat of the noise of the captains and the shouting he had begun his long exile once indeed with a foreign army he had again entered the land he hoped to rule and had been chased out of it with a price upon his head in france he had been taught the same lesson as in england the lesson of war between king and subjects during nine years he had remained almost ignorant of the opinions of english people upon the matters that were of chief importance to them and while thoroughly english in his physical vigour his love of the sea and of all forms of active sport he was politically a foreigner to his country he knew more of france and spain of the flemings and the dutch far more of scotland than he did of england no less was he the slave of circumstance in his personal habits separated from the father whose private life was beyond reproach fretting under the control of a mother with whom there was no sympathy he had learned under the tuition of buckingham every evil lesson that that most despicable man could teach from the age of sixteen he had given the rein to his animal passions he was without love save for his child sister without friendships too healthy and too indolent to be ill-humoured he concealed under the easy good temper which so fascinated little minds an inveterate selfishness and an oriental ingratitude he had acquired patience but it was that ignoble form of patience which consists in waiting for difficulties to conquer themselves he had grown accustomed to beg with effrontery and to betray without shame in france and in flanders he had learned that religion was a matter of gorgeous ceremonies and easy morals in scotland he had learned that it was an austere and hateful tyranny for the rest he had a cool head much astuteness considerable insight into character adaptability and imagination a certain curious individuality of view and of action and a sense of humour it was not a king of this temper a king who though not wicked on the grand scale had no worthier standard of right and wrong than his own way and his own ease who could understand the proud boast of elizabeth words which after more than three centuries make every string of patriotism vibrate nothing no worldly thing under the sun is so dear to me as the love and goodwill of my subjects his father's last utterance from the isle of wight the abjuration of newcastle that he should strive to be a brave just and noble king were to him decent but unpractical verbiage he did not come to conduct a mighty people nor did he mean to risk reviving that people's enmity to the point of danger he had reached the haven of long deferred hope to maintain himself there to go no more on his travels he was prepared to palter with truth and soon to lie downright to make base subservience to opposition or unworthy inducement to trick and to cajole a hostage in france a puppet in scotland a mendicant and a dupe in flanders 
he had conceived no ambition to lead no will to oppose greatly no grace to yield to a people's desires in any way as to command enduring respect it was indeed fortunate that being such as he was charles had hide with him if the restoration was a personal triumph for the chancellor no less its safe passage through its early difficulties was due more to him than to any other man or men his industry honesty firmness and knowledge of men and parties and his familiarity with constitutional law eminently fitted him to deal first with the pressing difficulties of the moment and then with the restoration of the old parliamentary monarchy in conjunction with the anglican church under such modifications as the last twenty years had rendered necessary to bring back the country to the broad lines of a constitution which he loved the immediate objects before him were to limit the demand for vengeance to uphold the sanctity of private contracts to get rid of the menace of the army already muttering discontent at having been jockeyed into the king's service and to keep in play a house of commons largely composed of presbyterians until presbyterianism could be safely attacked the nature of his restoration had been pressed upon charles before he reached whitehall within three hours of his landing he was besieged almost beyond his good temper by the importunities of those who had suffered in the service of his father or himself at canterbury he realized that it was still monk and not he who was master so long as the army existed and that it was still the presbyterians and not the old royalists who held the parliament when the general presented him with a list of some seventy recommendations for the privy council in which there were those of only two of his zealous adherents hyde however undertook explanations which resulted in an acceptable modification for the astute soldier of fortune had no idea of risking the stake for which he had so skilfully played the game and so with the dukedom the garter the command of all the forces the mastership of the horse a place in the bedchamber and vast rewards in money and estates monk entered the council bringing with him his friend morris and the slippery humour of ashley cooper but consenting to the omission of a large number of those whose names he had perforce officially suggested out of this privy council a small committee was formed nominally for foreign affairs in which was vested the whole executive power hyde now earl of clarendon lord chancellor ormond lord stuart nicholas secretary southampton lord treasurer these projected into the reign of charles the second the high-toned virtues of the old cavalier stock and represented legitimacy in its purest form while monk morris who became the second secretary and manchester lord chamberlain stood for the other elements of the compromise for practical purposes the whole internal policy in england rested upon clarendon middleton the scotch cavalier in full possession of clarendon's favour was sent as high commissioner to inaugurate the drunken administration in scotland while robarts a presbyterian who had fought for the parliament was placed as monk's deputy in the command of ireland until ormond shortly afterwards reassumed the lord lieutenancy one most interesting source of counsel must not be unnoticed twenty-two years ago 
charles had received from newcastle the scheme for his education which was freely quoted in its place and now his old governor put into his hands another lengthy letter of advice as to how he should bear himself as king it is polonius advising laertes king james and king charles always about michaelmas went to royston in stable time both for hunting and hawking both at the field and at the river this would not only refresh your majesty with the sweet air and wholesome exercise but unbend your more serious thoughts from the weight of business that you would have in london this sir will maintain healthy and long life better than physic but the king must think of other people besides himself on his return to whitehall he must prepare masks for twelfth tide at which italians make the scenes best he should invite every one by tickets from the lord chamberlain and the lord chamberlain to be very careful that none else enter but those who are invited the second time the play is given the inns of court alone should be asked the third time the lord mayor sheriffs aldermen with the principal merchants and no others a handsome banquet every time and your majesty to drink their welcome which would infinitely please them at other times he must give balls and invite the young ladies give them a banquet and drink their welcome with thanks charles is to ride his horses of mainage twice a week which will encourage noblemen to do the like to wait of you and to make matches with your noblemen so many aside to run at the ring for a supper or a play or some little jewel besides this to be in the tilt-yard publicly upon coronation day there should be tilting and other horse feats to make your lords good horsemen and to keep good horses your majesty's father of blessed memory was the best man-at-arms i vow to god that i ever saw both for grace and sureness if objection is raised on the score of expense copper lace is very cheap and will make as good a show for one day as the best all queen elizabeth's day she had it and king james for gaming certain times your majesty will set down as also for tennis and pell-mell golf and other recreations will do for winter at length the king is to go to newmarket the sweetest place in the world and the best air no place like it for hunting hawking and coursing and horse-races he is to invite the northern lords and gentry that hath the best horses and hounds and to hold hound races with coloured ribbons newmarket it is added parenthetically with delicious if unconscious humour is especially suitable because while there the university will entertain you and send most excellent preachers every sunday at easter he must be careful to send venisons to the lords and powerful men or better to the ladies for as sir e cook said the night crow is powerful and the grey mare is the better horse whatever else he attends to the king should amuse the people panem et circenses newcastle then passes to the less important phases of kingship he trusts that his pupil will govern by love but love mingled with fear he must remember as in former days that the great study in learning for kings is not to read books but men he advises no change in scotland the scots will soon petition for a change themselves on irish matters newcastle is a little vague but would have charles bear in mind chichester's words to james i 
they are a very scurvy people your majesty and have been as scurvily used he should keep clear of rome for though they say the pope is chosen by the holy ghost if it were so i dare say the french king or the king of spain would offer him a bribe on either side as regards foreign politics newcastle's advice is very clean-cut i should humbly advise your majesty to have a war with one of those great kings and i think it would be best to begin with france when that is over have one with spain and by sea too the french will give you money for this at home charles should bear in mind that london is the great leviathan that england has a head too big for its body master that and you master the whole kingdom disarm it totally and arm yourself but hide your forces for the people loves not the cudgel as to the church newcastle expresses the old tudor view remember you are both king and pope the universities need purging and contain too many scholars but that which hath done most hurt is the abundance of grammar schools and inns of court newcastle urges that the grammar schools should be cut down to one half since it might be a school board election in the twentieth century they only teach boys to become clerks instead of farm labourers and mechanics charles is to give titles of honour to hinder parliament from attacking his ministers to entrust the government to none but well-trained statesmen to keep a bounteous table say eighty thousand pounds a year finally and most impressively your royal father always wanted money put money in your purse and keep it and avoid parliaments when you are rich and call a parliament your majesty is then master of the fields we have often wondered whether the royal laertes ever read the words of polonius it is certain that in almost every detail charles acted very closely in accordance with them one marked exception there was he tried indeed very hard to put money in his purse but newcastle had forgotten one adjunct of royalty as charles understood it he had forgotten the expenses of a harem End of section fifteen